Welcome to Bed Crime Stories Podcast. I'm your host, T. Hope you guys are all having a great day. To anyone new here, welcome. Thanks for checking the channel out. I would just like to ask that if you enjoyed the video after you've watched it or listened to it, if you could please just hit the like button and subscribe to the channel. Now, let's get started. Brian Koberger, the suspect in the Moscow, Idaho case, appeared in court today, where he waived his right to a speedy probable cause hearing within 14 days. Koberger's public defender, Ann Taylor, requested that the judge allow four or five days for the probable cause hearing, and no objection from the district attorney was lodged. The judge blocked the week of June 26 for the matter. Koberger was dressed in orange prison garb and ankle shackles, and he only spoke briefly, saying that he was waiving his right to a speedy trial. The judge ordered that he remain in custody without bond ahead of the June 26 hearing. June 26 seems like a long time. If Koberger's innocent, as he claims... June 26 might seem like an eternity to him. Being locked up and isolated would be daunting for most people, but I'm certain that he will soon have a bevy of groupies sending him letters. There's always a few nutty women who find these guys alluring for some reason. His newfound notoriety, if he is the person responsible for the crime, will likely be something he enjoys even if he's being called out for making amateur mistakes. More of Koberger's neighbors in Pullman, Washington, are talking to the press about him. One told CBS News that Koberger proactively asked him about the crime days after it occurred, allegedly saying, Yeah, seems like they have no leads. Seems like it was a crime of passion. It sounds like Koberger, if he is the perpetrator, could have been indulging in some duper's delight in that moment, relishing a chance to talk, if ever so briefly, about his crime. Having the police call it a crime of passion probably jazzed him, too. Maybe he was thinking at that moment that everything was going to plan and the cops had no clue. And while Koberger spoke to his neighbor about the crime in class when it came up, he is said to have remained silent. Perhaps he was afraid he might get too carried away talking about it and then slip up and say something that no one but the perpetrator could know. I say this based on those anonymous posts by someone going by both Papa Rogers and Inside Looking on Reddit that many believe came from Brian Koberger. By the way, I am wondering if that name Papa Rogers is an homage, perhaps, to Elliot Rogers, the guy who is like the god of incels. I noticed that he spelled it the same way with a D, R-O-D-G-E-R. -E if that was Koberger posting, then he was keeping tabs on the news and discussions about the crime 
as criminal profilers said the perpetrator would be doing, and he may also have enjoyed weighing in, in a post Papa Rogers made on November 30th, 2022, a month before Koberger's arrest, he wrote, This leads me to believe they found the sheath, end quote. It doesn't seem like anyone except maybe the police and the perpetrator could have known about the leather sheath that was found on victim Maddie Mogan's bed. You'd think Koberger would have refrained from online and in-person conversations about the crime so as not to risk exposing himself. Koberger possibly engaging like this reminds me of serialist Dennis Rader, a.k.a. BTK. Part of the reason Rader got caught after getting away with his crimes for 30 years is that he enjoyed messing with the authorities' heads and leaving clues for the police and reporters to find. Things like the note he left in an engineering textbook, the Wichita Public Library, and the poem he left in 1978 after doing in a lady named Shirley Vian. Although his last crime occurred in 1991, Rader suddenly started dropping clues once again in 2004. He sent a box to a news station in Wichita, Kansas, that included a Barbie doll acting out his first crime against the Otero family. The box also included another victim's driver's license. A month later, the same news station received a postcard that led them to another note that read, Can I communicate with Floppy and not be traced to a computer? Be honest. End quote. Raider ended up sending the floppy disk, and the cops were able to use metadata from the documents to reveal Dennis Raider was BTK. If Raider had just laid low, he likely would not have been caught until years later. DNA technology would have eventually caught up with him, but Raider's need to communicate was how he shot himself in the foot. As of now, I personally believe Koberger is likely the perpetrator based on what's in the probable cause affidavit. The data from his mobile phone suggesting that he visited the area near the girl's home at 1122 King Road in Moscow, Idaho, on at least 12 occasions prior to November 13th is very damning. The cell towers showed that the 28-year-old criminology student was already hanging out around the girl's house in June of 2022. That was right after he moved from Pennsylvania to Washington. And I'm now wondering, after seeing the two police cam videos of their visits to 1122 King Road for noise complaints during two of the girls' many parties, did Koberger consider that particular house that had so many parties and so many people going in and out, did he think that would be good because it would contain tons of DNA and because a defense attorney could argue that there were other strangers in that house who could have done this? Based on that first late-night visit to King Road in Moscow in June, it seems as though Koberger selected his victim or victims 
for his future crime right after his arrival on the West Coast. It's like he may already have had a plan to commit a crime before he arrived in Washington State. And upon arrival in Pullman, he was ready to set things in motion. Why did Brian Koberger decide to pursue his doctorate in criminology at Washington State University anyway? Attending WSU meant the Pennsylvania native would have to move 2,500 miles across the country. What was it about Washington State University that twinkled his toes? I looked at U.S. News' 2021 rankings for the best criminology schools in the United States to see if that could shed light on Koberger's choice. The top picks in order from one to four were, one, the University of Maryland College Park, two, a tie between Arizona State University and the University of California at Irvine. In third place was the University of Cincinnati, and in fourth place was Pennsylvania State University at University Park. You'd think Pennsylvania State University would be Koberger's top pick since it was in his home state. Why didn't he go there if it's considered a better university for the study of criminology than Washington State University? WSU, the one Koberger was attending when he was arrested, came in at number 23 out of 43 institutions listed. To be fair, I checked another ranking. This one was on collegefactual.com, and its rankings were for the best criminology PhD program. On this one, the University of California at Irvine was first. The University of Maryland at College Park was second. The University of Delaware was third. And the University of Florida at Gainesville was fourth. And then the University of Texas at Dallas was fifth. Washington State University came in at number seven. Not bad. Maybe Koberger chose WSU because it was the only school that accepted him. That would be among the simplest explanations for this cross-country move. But assuming his 12 visits to King Road, 11 of which were at night, were to do surveillance, learn the nighttime habits of his chosen victims, and perhaps satisfy a physical urge, then we can see he was planning the crime as early as June. But had he really been the criminal mastermind he may have thought he was, he would have turned his cell phone off or left it on but left it at home in Pullman when he made these 12 visits to King Road in Moscow. So far, no one has come out to say Koberger had a girlfriend or a guy friend living near King Road. It would appear Koberger took the time to think through the details, to scope out the neighborhood, look for security cameras, figure out the best points of entry and exit to the house, see which bedrooms his future victim or victims occupied, figure out the best route to the house and away from it post-crime. All this is to say, is it possible that Brian Koberger wanted to be far from home, not only to study criminology, 
but also to be free to prepare for the crime at all hours without interruptions from or the awareness of family and friends. We heard from his downstairs neighbor at the apartment complex in Pullman that Koberger was an insomniac, staying up late, vacuuming, running his food disposal, and pacing the floor. Without family nearby keeping tabs on him, Koberger could stay up, drive over to King Road in Moscow, maybe hang out in the tree line behind the house, looking in through the back windows for an hour or two, and then appear exhausted every day and have no one express concern or be aware of it, people who cared about him. He also wouldn't have to take time out to see his parents. Left to his own devices in Pullman, I believe Koberger was able to indulge in the sick fantasies he may have had in his head for years. And while Koberger hasn't been proven to be a serialist, he may have had the makings of one and may have just been starting out his career. A psychologist named Joel Norris conducted 500 interviews with serialists before coming up with a list of seven psychological stages that he found serialists go through before, during, and after their crimes. The first one is called the aura phase. According to Norris, during the aura phase, the serialist begins to put distance between himself and social relations, and sometimes this situation can go unnoticed by family and friends. It's during this phase that the serialist's fantasies begin to gain weight. Washington might also have had added appeal for Koberger because of serialist Ted Bundy's connection to the state. It was in Washington that Bundy earned an undergraduate degree in psychology. Note that Brian Koberger studied psychology as well at DeSales University in Pennsylvania. Bundy also attended law school in Washington. During his law school days, on January 4, 1974, Bundy attacked a University of Washington student at her home. She was one of the lucky ones. She managed to survive, albeit with permanent brain damage. He waited a month before heading to another undergraduate's off-campus house in the early morning hours and then doing her in. Sounds very familiar, doesn't it? We can never know exactly what goes through the mind of the person who commits a brutal crime like the one that took Zana Cornado, Ethan Chapin, Maddie Mogan, and Kaylee Gonsalves from their loved ones, but Koberger's many breadcrumbs, including those anonymous posts made to the message board for sufferers of visual snow syndrome that I spoke about in yesterday's video, do seem to shed light on the tornadoes that were raging in his mind before November 13th of 2022. Until the next time on Bed Crime Stories. Now do me a favor, if you enjoyed this, please hit that like button and please consider subscribing. See you next time.